Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Hey, hello, Internet, and welcome to our third panel here at the Center for the Political Future, and I'm excited about it. It's called How Strong is Trump's Hold on the GOP, the Grand Old Party? I'm Mike Murphy, co-director of the Center here, and we have an esteemed, accomplished Republican panel with one journalistic exception, though I don't actually know how our journalistic panel member votes, as it should be, uh, to talk about this topic. And so let me do some introductions, and then we will get right to it. Joining us is a recent fellow from the center here, a spring 2021 fellow, a big hit, a big success, former Congresswoman Barbara Comstock, an old friend of mine from the Republican Wars. She was elected to Congress in 2014, served two terms representing a tough swing district, uh, the 10th Congressional District. And before that, back when I know her, worked as a strategic advisor to both George W. Bush and Mitt Romney. Welcome, Barbara. Another old friend, Robert George, he's a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, and before that, an editorial writer with both the New York Daily News and the New York Post, two of the great, great newspapers that I enjoy reading, particularly the the editorials, of course, Robert, and always the front page would. He is a conservative and libertarian blogger and pundit who worked for the RNC and Newt Gingrich, the former Speaker of the House of Representatives. Another former member of Congress, Mark Meadows, who served as the 29th, I believe the last White House Chief of Staff from 2020 to 2021 for President Donald Trump. He was a U.S. Representative in the Congress from North Carolina's fight in the 11th District from 2013 to 2020. And he was the second uh, chairman elected of the Freedom Caucus in the House Republican Conference. He's currently a senior partner with Conservative Partnership Institute. Thank you, Mark. And then finally, from that hotbed of Republican fanboyism, the New York Times, my friend Jeffrey Peters, who's a national political reporter for the Times and a contributor to MSNBC. He's written about deeply covered, too, uh, really knows the, the world of this. The last three presidential elections and his coverage is often focused on media, culture and religion coming together to shape and drive American politics. He has a new book coming out, which a lot of people are interested in reading, called Insurgency, how the Republicans lost their party and got everything they ever wanted, which is a narrative of kind of the the stresses within the party and the evolution that culminated in the presidency of Donald Trump and maybe the future beyond, which is what we're going to talk about. So I'll, I'll throw the first question out. I'll start with our two members of Congress, Barbara uh, and then Mark. How strong is President Trump's grip on the GOP right now? And will it grow going forward or will it fade into the rearview mirror? What do we think? Barbara, we'll start with you. Okay, well, great to be with you. And I would uh, say I do not think the future of either the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, for that matter, is going to be old white men. Um, I think you've seen recent polls, both by NBC, and but also a poll that um, Ambassador John Bolton did, showing that the kind of hold, the grip that Trump has is dissipating. And I think that's because, you know, somebody who lost the popular vote twice, was impeached twice, lost the House, lost the Senate, most notably the last two people he endorsed, um, we lost. So that is not the future. And I think even people who may have liked Trump or the people who like 
his policies, but maybe found his personality too toxic. They realize they need to turn the page. And I think that will be, and I don't think he will be running again. I think it's really, it's a lot about raising money for a lot of the people around him who um, are, 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 some of whom can't find other jobs. So I think you will see the future of the party is going to be people like Tim Scott, who you saw last night, but also Adam Kinzinger, people like Young Kim of California, who ran way ahead of Donald Trump. Um, Will Hurd, who didn't run again last year, but is a very, I think, a, a, a voice that you're going to hear more from. People like Chris Sununu in New Hampshire, who ran double digits ahead of Trump in New Hampshire and won in that state, a state that, of course, Trump lost. I think you're going to see more governors coming out, people like Mayor Suarez of Miami. So we have a deep bench. And even though Trump lost, we won down ballot and we have policies that win. I think the toxic personality of Trump lost, his lack of empathy on COVID, his, um, you know, just the attacks, whether it's on minorities or the misogyny, that's what lost. But if you look down ballot, places like Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, we did well. And we have a lot of these future stars that I think are going to uh, and those will be the brave ones. Now, I'm not saying it's not, you know, if you're in a very red district, yeah, it's, it's easy to be a suck up to one person, but we're not a cult of personality. And the Marjorie Green mode is a path to Republicans being in a permanent minority. That is not the path to a majority. Mark, I'll give you a little equal time. You might disagree, but you tell us. <laughs> well, I do disagree, but uh, but Barbara is a, a a previous colleague. Obviously, we served together. I, I, uh, she was a hard worker when she was working in uh, that swing district, the 10th district of Virginia. Uh, met her a number of times where she was out working parades. So it, it's not anything other than uh, acknowledging the facts. The facts are uh, everything still re- revolves around uh, President Donald Trump. Uh, his endorsement is probably the most powerful thing that I've seen in, in politics. Uh, uh, ever, uh, it continues to be, and even even with some of the uh, uh, the members of Congress that Barbara pointed out, all of those are in what I would call more marginal swing districts. And so, uh, as you look at that, whether it's Adam or Young Kim uh, and and their districts, uh, she's picking out districts that really don't represent the vast majority of of uh, the. 200 plus members of Congress in the Republican Party. The, the, other, the other interesting fact is, is that Donald Trump got uh, uh, almost 200,000 more votes in Virginia, her home state, uh, in 2020. And, and yet uh, we, we still see a, a loss that uh, uh, Joe lost by 10 percent instead of five because well, we, he turned out so many more. Yeah. Yet. So so <laughs> if you want to argue the facts, I'll be glad to argue the facts with you, Barbara. I mean, the, the facts are is that he did better with African-American men by six points than he did in 2016. He did better than Mitt Romney uh, with the Latino Hispanic vote. And so when you start to reach out, I, I can tell you, I traveled with him with all kinds of different rallies. And what we found an interesting statistic was the people that were showing up and the reason why he's here to stay, the people that were showing up at these rallies, uh, as much as high uh, teens, 17, 18% of the people that would show up either never voted before or were Democrats showing up. And so he was reaching in on a more populist note to, uh, 
reach those disenfranchised Americans who felt like that Washington, D.C. had forgotten them. And there is. I'll, I'll agree. There's a big struggle right now. Washington, D.C. wants to go back to the way that it's always been for the Republican Party. Uh, I, I, uh, I don't think that that's going to happen. In fact, I, I would be extremely surprised. And, and since, uh, since Barbara is so, uh, uh, sure about the president not running again. I can tell you, based on my conversations, uh, if I had to uh, uh, bet, uh, I, I think not only does he get in, but he gets in and runs uh, in a very aggressive manner. Oh, we might have made a little news here. Uh, Robert, I'm going to let you be the first tiebreaker. If if you were flying saucers landed and put you in complete control of the Republican Party with no dissension, do you make a forward bet on Trump to win back seats, win back the suburbs, win back the White House, or do you retire him permanently and try to move on? What's the smarter move to win seats, just the raw politics of it? I mean, I think the, sm- the, the smarter move to win seats uh, is, uh, is, is less Trump. And, and, and I think we have to kind of go, I, I mean, you, you understand this, um, we have to go think of 2022 before we think of 2024. And uh, we have we have yet to see uh, if Donald if um, if 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 Repu- Republicans voters turn out when Donald Trump is not on is not on the ballot. Um, we saw uh, we saw that uh, Democrats uh, certainly can turn out, out um, when they're inspired or uh, enraged, aroused, however, whatever words you want to use, um, uh, to turn out against against Donald Trump. We saw that in 2018, and we saw it again. We saw it again in 20 in 2020. Now, under normal under normal circumstances. The, the party that doesn't have the White House, uh, you know, usually ends up picking up, uh, picking up seats, um, in the, in the, in the midterms. And so re- Republicans should be, um, should be favored to do that in, in, tw- in 2022. If Donald Trump, though, is the, is, is the story, I think the, the, the odds of that, uh, shrink, um, uh, considerably because I, you'll see, you'll see Democrats that will, will want to, uh, turn out, uh, both, uh, to support um, Joe Biden, assuming that uh, w- what we're seeing so far is going to continue in terms of in terms of job development and 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 passing um, and passing plans that are popular um, with the um, with the Amer- with the American public. Uh, if it becomes if, if if Donald Trump sort of insists on making this about him as much as it is about Joe as it is about Joe Biden I think uh, I think Republicans are in a very uh, end up being in a very um, um, poor uh, position and that is then going to uh, is going to color what happens in in 2024 uh, I'm really glad I'm really glad that uh, uh, that uh, Barbara brought up um, uh, t- uh, Tim Scott's uh, speech um, last night because I think, um, you know, to, to, to use a phrase going back to the 90s, um, t- Tim Scott may have actually identified um, uh, a third way of, uh, uh, for Republicans to uh, d- uh, deal with the, post, the, po- the post-Trump world. Um, Tim Scott um, neither um, embraced Tim, Donald Trump. I mean, he, he, 
Donald Trump's name was not mentioned at all in that speech. Um, but at the same time, he didn't take a position like we were talking about Congressman Kinziger. He didn't take a posi position of being anti-Trump um, either, as Kinziger and Liz Cheney and, and others have. Uh, instead, he gave um, a speech which uh, s certainly um, winked at some of the concerns that the, 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 um, that the Trump supporters have such as uh, such as uh, uh, um, voting voting in voting integrity um but at the same at the same time he he talked about he talked about issues he talked about the fact that J joe biden had uh, broken his pledge on on getting all the schools getting all the schools opened up uh he notably he only made one slight reference to the border even though that's been the big issue that uh, republicans have been um have been banging the drum on uh and and i and i think that i think it was a i think it was a very i think it was a very su a very successful speech and i i think if republicans are smart um taking that kind of tone tone taking that as a as a as a as a blueprint as it were is going to be better than um hit, trying to hitch their um uh, hitch their future um, support to um to uh, to Donald Trump who to to act, to finish your to answer your question I don't think will run in 2024 All right so Jeremy you've had your um your safari clothes on and your pith helmet going through all the different Republican dense jungles and islands of the different power groups within the party. What's your take on the future question? Trumpy hybrid or not, or more of a reversion to the old me? I think it's Trumpy until Trump decides that he doesn't want to be a part of the conversation anymore. I think you, you can see that in the way that Republicans, for the most part, you know, there are obvious exceptions like Liz Cheney and, and Adam Kinzinger, but for the most part, are really running scared of him. I mean, just look at the way that Nikki Haley has basically discredited herself as a viable Republican presidential candidate. At least that's that's my, the sense I get from talking to a lot of Republicans because it, she she couldn't get her message straight on this. She said at first, I think what was really in her heart, which is that January 6th horrified her and the way that Trump treated, treated Mike Pence was, was reprehensible. Um, then she had to walk that back because she got too much grief from from the right from from Trump supporters and she is kind of I think it's it's emblematic of what Republicans are going to have to contend with what they have been contending with for, for the last several years and what they will going into 2024 he is the the center of gravity in the Republican Party right now and remains so even though he's been deplatformed and defenestrated I mean it's, it's really kind of remarkable how you know he on the one hand he's, his his ability to control the news cycle has really been taken away by not having Twitter anymore. But that news cycle, at least on the right, was already so in sync with, with his issues and, and the culture war battles that he stoked that it's almost kind of self-sustaining in its Trumpiness. So he's still very much benefiting from that. Um, and, and he's now basically been relegated to being just another consumer of conservative media. Um, but that's what he was before he ran for president. And I think that's part of what made him, you know, the, the person he is today. I mean, he's almost, he, he, and I, I often see a lot of similarities between you know him and Bill O'Reilly, the ultimate Fox news alpha male, but you know, that's the culture of the Republican party today that, that is dominant as, as long as I think, I think it was Congressman, uh, Congresswoman Comstock pointed out, you know, these people show up without him on the ballot. And I think that's the big question. Do they continue to show up? Um, what we can see now, though, is 
the ones who are running for Congress are making this pilgrimage to Mar-a-Lago where the most important thing that they think they can get right now to put a stamp, uh, a stamp of approval um, on their on their candidacy is, is the sign-off from Donald Trump. And his influence on the party is not just in candidates, but on the issues as well, because, you know, these lawmakers in states all over the country right now continue to pass these laws, the, the, the underpinning of which is that this election was somehow stolen from him uh, and that these are laws that he is, is pleased to see passing. And so they get behind them because this is what long state lawmakers know that his voters want. And those voters are the key to reelecting them. Uh, I, as, at least as far into the future as I can see, which is not very far. But Well, that, that is a good point. So, you know, we all know that in politics, perception is reality. And for the average Republican elected, particularly federally, you know, the perception has been that Trump is Godzilla in a Republican primary. So therefore, you have to kind of pay him homage or then quietly complain about him if, if you don't agree. But are we too early? There's not going to be a meaningful mark to market on any of this until next year in the congressional primaries. Trump won't be on the ballot, but he'll probably be out there with his grievance list trying to get even with some people. Shouldn't we wait until then to know what kind of Trump we have? It just strikes to me it's it's all kind of bluff poker right now. And we're not going to see any cards till the primary season next year in the congressionals. We know what the polling says. The polling says it's asymmetrical. A lot of strength in the Republican Party, though it has been shrinking, not a lot of strength in the general election. So, you know, uh, uh, should somebody just tune out for a year and tune back in for the primaries? Do we think the primaries next year will answer the question with Trump not on the ballot but involved? What, uh, What reaction do we have to that? Anybody? Well, look, you already have within the Republican caucus itself, you had a vote where uh, Matt Gates, you know, who I guess we don't talk about anymore, but, you know, he told everyone he had, you know, more than half the caucus opposing Liz Cheney. And then, you know, certainly the president, uh, I mean, Donald Trump, Trump Jr. and others came out in opposition to Liz and the silent majority of the caucus, two thirds of them voted um, for Liz. And of course, these guys who make a lot of noise get a lot of attention but the fact is, the people who are out there doing the hard work, the Jamie Herrera Butlers who are passing bills and working together, they're the ones who are going to win their primaries. Um, Adam's going to win his primary. Um, you know, uh, Anthony Gonzalez is going to win his primary. And I think you're going to see, um, you know, the, the Trump endorsement, according to polls, for one thing, it, it's only, it may be only, ma- for half the people, it doesn't matter. For 24% of, of Republicans, they're saying they're more likely to support the person he opposes. So this is not somebody who can unite. He couldn't unite the country. He can't unite the party. So if you can't unite the party, you can't win a majority or a majority of states. So that's the, and I think that's what people are realizing. And even people who even like his toxic personality as well as policies are saying, yeah, I might like it. But I understand I can't win back those swing districts. Yeah, it works in the red districts. But if you can't get those swing districts, you don't have a majority. Mark? Uh, you know, so to your question, is it too early? I, I guess uh, 
uh, I'll share some real time. So while we've been on this call for the last uh, 17, 18 minutes, I've actually gotten two text messages, one from one uh, governor candidate, another from a Senate candidate saying, uh, can they have a meeting with President Trump to make sure that they get their his endorsement in their primary? Uh, so I do think it's a little early uh, if, you know, from a strategist standpoint, uh, it would be very, uh, I guess, uh, prudent to to wait a little bit before those endorsements uh, actually get rolled out. But but I can tell you that it is is literally a a choose them kind of uh, uh, mentality that you either pick one side or the other. And, and while Barbara talks about the swing districts that you have to win to win the majority, I I, I would point to some of the very candidates that she was talking about that won in swing districts with President Trump on the ballot. And uh, I mean, the not a single. Not, no, hold on, just a second, Barbara. Just a second. So, uh, with without a doubt, uh, you know, when you look at California and picking up seats there, not a single uh, congressional race was lost, which is unheard of. But not a single congressional race was lost with President Trump on the ballot. And and what we have to look at in 2022, it's very different than than a presidential year. You you have you have it really. Uh, put in in Texas. Do I think the Republicans will win the uh, back the majority? I do. I think that runs through, obviously, through Texas and Florida as we look at a pickup of seats. And, and as they do the apportionment, uh, it'll it'll run through those two states. But but when we look at that, uh, you know, a lot of the congressional districts are, are getting much more red. And uh, and where I do disagree, Anthony Gonzalez is not going to win his primary. Oh, we're we have you guys back in a year on that one. We're we're find out. We're put a little little bet together. The loser has to give fifty bucks to the center. He'll have plenty of money, but he won't have plenty of votes. We will see about that. I, I I'm going to push back a little, Congressman. I they made me take moderator pills here to tranquilize my normal screaming uh, no, rhino. I, I, I love it. I love the kinder, gentler Mike. You know. Yeah, I'm great. I'm trying hard here. It was a very. It was a, they got a veterinarian to put me under, um, but. <laughs> But we got to be careful a little bit about the causations. It's kind of the old wet streets cause rain thing, because on one hand, the it is true. And I guess you can claim credit on, on the pro-Trump side that the House Republicans did better than anybody expected them to do. But the election that had Trump's name on the ballot at the top of the ballot still lost. Trump got a lot of votes. You know, Joe Biden broke the meter on votes. So I, you know, that causation thing, you can kind of spin it either way. Bottom line is, from my point of view, we have not had a lot of legislative victories under the Trump presidency. But then again, we haven't given the Democrats, you know, room to screw up yet in a reelect. So that's why I keep saying it might be a little early. I would disagree with one thing that you said in terms of mm-hmm. legislative victories. Uh, you know, I, I can I can I, I don't yeah. know that, what, what exactly you're talking about there, because uh there there were a number of legislative no no fair point i i I meant it in the term legislative oh you meant you meant okay you know house senate yeah 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 i meant the campaign stuff i on the policy i hear you uh all right robert so here's another uh, a question for you and and jeremy uh you can address the last thing we're just talking about but january 6th does that stay never go away or will nobody care in a year well it it seems it seems like uh, it seems like republicans want to um uh, vanish it down the memory hole, uh, and, and 
and that seems to be a you know proceeding a proceeding apace. Um, it, it, it seems to it seems to have been a permanent marker, though, for um, for, um, for Democrats. And, and and frankly, I think you know appropriately so. I mean, it was a I mean it was a disgrace. And uh, even though it, it appears that um, uh, the the, um, the police officer police officer Sicknick um, didn't die specifically because um, specifically because of the attack, uh, the, the truth is uh, several uh, several um, more than several uh, Capitol police officers were 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 injured in the fight uh, in the in the insurrection, and uh, it's it's outrageous. And it's I mean, and it's it's really. Uh, rather disturbing that um, that, that even um, Republicans on the Hill can't seem to uh, come to an agreement with the with the Democrats to have uh, an actual um, uh, uh, you know bipartisan commission to um, to you know to examine um, the um, uh, the roots of the roots of the insurrection. Uh, but re so right now it's it's uh, it, it seems like Re Republicans have decided to go to na 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 na. I you know I, I'm I'm ignoring I'm I'm ignoring I'm ignoring this. Uh, but uh, but to, to Democrats Democrats I think um, are certainly going to um, uh, raise money, um, raise money off of it, particularly against um, Republicans who um, who voted to, um, uh, to 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 not certify to not certify the election. So I think the memory of I think the me the memory of January sixth is going to go up is is going to continue on. And and we and we heard it in um, we heard it in the um, in the president's the president's address yesterday as well. So you know from the White House on down, um, Democrats are not going to forget um, January sixth, and re Republicans are either going to try to ignore it or uh, obfuscate off of it. Jeremy, what do you think the origin is of both that thinking? And polls show us, depending on the poll, anywhere from a strong plurality to a majority of, of rank-and-file self-identified Republicans believe the election was um, somewhat fraudulent, not legitimate. They kind of believe that cloud that it is hard to find impartial people uh, to verify. How, what, what is that, that thought bubble about? Will it stick? And is that the new rules of gravity in the GOP, in your view? Yeah, I mean, there are polls showing that, Mike. There are also polls showing that that a fair number of Republicans, majority, the last one I saw, uh, wrongly believed that there were far left elements like Antifa that were responsible for what happened on January 6th. And I think that to answer your question, really what January 6th has done is to solidify what the culture of the Republican Party has become. And that's entirely a culture of, of Donald Trump and the reality that he wants to exist rather than the reality that does, in fact, exist. I mean, I think one of the most extraordinary things about this, uh, to, to Robert's point about the police officers who were injured, is you, know, you had a, a, a mob of Trump supporters attacking law enforcement beating them so to the point where one of them suffered a heart attack. And this is the party of law enforcement. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be the pro-police party. These are, and these are people who are undertaking undeniably anti-cop activity. And there is no recognition of that whatsoever uh, among the president's supporters right now. And it, I think that just shows uh, n not just the, the way that, you know, they will 
stick their fingers in their ears, close their eyes uh, to, to, to the reality, but in, in some cases are also trying to rewrite the history around what happened that day. And I, I think you listen to Tucker Carlson, you, you listen to the, some of the, the commentary on what happened to Officer Sicknick, and it's like, oh, see, not, what the media has been lying to you all along about what really happened on January 6th, it wasn't so bad. And Trump doesn't think it was that bad. He doesn't think that uh, th- those people were going to do anything to Mike Pence. He doesn't think ultimately that 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 most of them are, had any type of, of, of bad intentions. Uh, and I think that if, if if history is any guide here, that's what his voters will continue to believe because they tend to parrot what he says. Yeah, I think one of the things that is going, because I think January 6th did change everything. And obviously, there's a lot of books being written now, both by White House insiders, as well as reporters who have, you know, pretty hefty leaking from the White House, including about that day. And I think as more information comes out about that day and the surrounding weeks leading to that, that again is going to dissipate. Trump's impact. And I think it's very important that we do have a 9-11 type commission to find things like, you know, who was Trump calling that day? Why didn't he act faster? We know he sits there and watches TV all day. How could he not have responded to this? And I think something like Officer Fanon's um, interview the other night on CNN, where he was pushing back on that idea of that nothing happened or that this wasn't significant. It was. And having heard firsthand accounts from people who were there, who heard our Capitol Police officers called the N-word by these Trump supporters, and knowing that they were not Antifa people there, and all of these lies that continue to be spread, those are going to get weaker and weaker as time goes on, and that also will undermine Trump long-term. Mark, if somebody was there... I'm curious. I I think Trump may run again, too. I don't think he's decided. I think he's kind of watching it. And I think he's betting on the Democrats to overreach and have a better chance if he can win a primary to to come back. And we saw President Biden. Look, I'm an anti-Trumper, but I'm a conservative. And I saw literally 1.5 times the entire cost of World War II in adjusted real dollars being suggested in spending programs the last 100 days. If Trump does get does run, does get the nomination and the Democrat, either President Biden running for reelection or a front runner like Senator Vice President Harris, will Trump, do you think, have the discipline to run a forward pitch campaign or will he want to nurse grievances? And uh, that's that's because that discipline issue, taking my own Trump feelings away, does seem to be a huge question about whether or not he'd be able to run a viable or at least effective campaign in the future. You know him, you know his personality. What do you think he would do? What's your best guess as kind of an expert on, on observing the guy? Uh, I think probably the biggest thing uh, that that is newsworthy is is uh, President Trump's willingness right now to look at at policy and and uh, and agendas. Uh, you know, uh, Newt uh, Gingrich has been mentioned. Uh, there's been a, a number of conversations with with uh, uh, Speaker Gingrich, uh, Lindsey Graham, uh, a few others uh, with President Trump. 
in terms of, of what, what are the things that uh, are those disciplined messages going forward? Uh, you know, if you were to tell me that a few words on a red hat was going to be what all of America rallied around in 2016, I would have said that's not, not the case. And, and yet what we, we, we all know that Make America Great uh, on a Red Hat, uh, you know, stands for one thing or, or is uh, uh, certainly the, the nemesis for, for some on the left. But, uh, it, but it was that focus about America first. I, I do think that from a policy standpoint, uh, he is fully engaged right now. Uh, I know I met with him uh, two weeks ago uh, down in South Florida where we were discussing some of the policy issues. So whether, whether he runs again or not, uh, or whether he is actually just uh, working with someone who does run in 2024, uh, it, it, it is going to have uh, uh, really a, a Donald Trump fingerprint on it. And I know, Barbara, that's like nails on a, a chalkboard to her. Uh, and, uh, and, and yet, I, I can say that without a doubt, there's there's no way that you can travel all over this country and and go from place to place and have the organic support for President Trump and and deny that it's authentic and and so as long as as in the key point to to your question is so as long as it continues to be about what makes America great and the priorities for the American people um I, I think that it's not only a successful ma- uh, message, but it's one that will resonate. You know, last night, you, you and I both heard uh, this was all about big government last night. I mean, it, I, I could not believe the four to six trillion dollars, depending on how you count it, uh, that was really about uh, doing it from cradle to grave in terms of government intervention. It's not, not what conservatives are about. It's not what anybody on the panel uh, would would suggest that has worked long term. And yet, um, doing the contrast between uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump would be uh, difficult if you don't keep that focus. Jeremy, you recently, I think, spoke with him. I'd love your take on that. Will it be a grievance fest? Or could he have an effective 2.0 learn from his mistakes campaign if he if he is the nominee in 2024? I mean, I think Donald Trump knows how to do one thing, and that's how to divide people. And that's going to be what he does if he runs again. Uh, it works. Uh, it, it it almost worked for him this last time. I mean, let's not forget, what was it, 40,000 votes in a handful of states that decided the Electoral College? I mean, yes, Biden won a massive uh, popular vote victory, but this was still a close race in a lot of places. Yeah, and we don't know. 42,918 42, votes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, okay. no, I, I got to say, as a political <laughs> hack, <laughs> That is a trick number either way, because there's a Mondale version of that with 99,007 votes, because you never can redistribute them. That, But anyway, point is, they both got a ton of votes. So sure. yeah, absolutely. And the Republican nomination, I think, will be worth having in four years if the Biden guys, for their own ideological reasons, I'm, I'm not going to give the conservative lecture on that here, but if they make the big taxing and spending bet and put the party there and the progressives are most of the energy and become the brand, having that RF your name will be worth a lot. And Trump has a, we can argue about how much, but he's got a shot at that. I'm just curious if, if Trump is the atomic clock of Trump and he can't change and he'll be ranting about Fred Upton and, you know, voting to impeach him and 10 traitors or 
would there be a, do you think you, you spoke to him recently as Mark did, which would let me shut up. What's your take? No, I think you're exactly right. Um, he, you know, I, I have to be a little careful about what I say. I don't want to spoil what's going to be in the book. Um, and I also don't want to, uh, you're a capitalist. I don't blame you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, it, 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 it's a good point because, I think that speaks also to your question of whether or not he runs. I don't think there's any way that that any of us here can know that. Um, I think Mark and I being the two people who have spoken to him uh, most recently would both tell you that uh, uh, he's still very upset about the election. And regardless of whether or not he went into this uh, believing that that the election could be stolen from him, he believes that now. But that's that's what he thinks. And he's very angry about it. And he blames a lot of Republicans for that, for not standing up for him, including his own former vice president. Um, That's someone whose political future and who's, you know, uh, what what his standing right now in in the party, what that says about the culture of the party. I think that's a fascinating subject, probably for an entire panel discussion in and of itself. But I think the election were held tomorrow. Trump would absolutely run. The problem is it's not tomorrow. And a lot can happen in the next few years. Okay, well, I was just going to say in your position as the aliens made you the all powerful head of the party and Trump doesn't run. Who do you think in the current crop? Because there are probably, oh, I don't know, uh, 150 Republicans who dream of running for president right now in elected office. But of the ones you see out moving around, the Christie Gnomes, the Governor DeSantis down in Florida, obviously Nikki Haley, who's, you know, extremely ambitious. Um, Marco Rubio, who I don't think has lost his map in New Hampshire, et cetera, et cetera. Who do you think are most likely to bubble to the top? Who do you think the three are in a world with Trump maybe influence, but no Trump candidacy? If Trump is sort of the wizard in the background and is not actually out there, out there himself, uh, it's it's not surprising that um, that um, uh, Governor DeSantis is getting a lot of attention right now, um, and kind of deservedly so too, because uh, uh, as uh, f- friends of mine in New York, uh, a, a, a good friend of mine in New York. Um, uh, earlier this year, basically in January, uh, she and her husband uh, took the kids and moved down to Florida for four months because she wanted her kids in school. Um, in in school, uh, and, and she she said, you know, it's uh, it's it's 2019 in Florida in, in terms of you know no lockdowns and people kind of going about their going about their business. And so um, Rhonda Santis's handling um, of the uh, uh, of the pandemic is is different than say, um, Governor Whitmer or Governor, let's not talk about Cuomo, but uh, DeSantis is seen as somebody who is effective, uh, is a governor, uh, um, Republicans like like governors because of um, because of of executive experience. So definitely look at him. Um, I think I think um, uh, I've thought this for a while, but particularly based um, on his response to um, Biden's address, I think um, uh, I think Tim Scott is going to be getting um, is going to be getting a lot of a lot of attention because I think there is a fact that um, as much as conservatives um, uh, dismiss progressives as saying, well, you know, um, they call everybody racist, um, there is a there is, I think, there's a deep desire. I mean, in the, in the, in the conservative movement and, and amongst the party uh, broadly, um, from 
even even in, even in its most conservative corners, uh, is to be seen not as racist. And I think um, uh, t- t- Tim Scott is uh, is somebody that uh, uh, a large segment of the of the of this of the um, party could get behind because um, I think the the. The, the most important line that he, he gave in that address was um, uh, America is not a racist country. And uh, the, 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 if, you were on, if you go on Twitter and other social media, the, the, the hair on fire coming, um, coming from the left in response to that was, was, um, was, was, kind of, was, was kind of telling. And uh, the, the, that statement, even, even, among, even, among, Dem- even among Democrats, um, they, people who love the country don't want, even if they see uh, episodes like Derek Chauvin and, you know, George Floyd and so forth, um, th- there is a desire in a large segment of this country to see those as anomalies, um, not as, not just as, not just as business as usual. So uh, Tim Scott uh, running it both as a conservative Black Republican, but also um, uh, using this line that America is not a racist country. It, it, in a sense, it sounds almost um, it, some, it sounds almost like Obama two thousand eight, where Obama runs as, as running as a patriotic liberal who says um, only in a country like America is my story able to I- I- able to be true. And so I, I think um, Scott Tim Scott is not a rah rah kind of a candidate. But um, I, th- I think he's um, he, he's somebody who you may after after a boring Biden uh, presidency, Republicans might want to like run a boring candidate who just happens to be um, just happens to be African-American. Yeah, I thought he busted a few pretty good Republican primary moves last night in the in, you know, uh, speaking to both audiences at once. Barbara, I'll let you do your list, including who will be the, the great hope for us uh us never Trumpers, if he is, if, if somebody might engage Trump in a primary. I'm glad you didn't say great white hope. <laughs> oh, no, I get in enough trouble around USC to begin with. I'm not going to get a hundred miles from that. Are you kidding? All right, go ahead, Barbara. As we all know, it's a lifetime until the yeah. next election. Certainly in 1988, nobody was forecasting Bill Clinton. So I think it's, but I do think one thing I'll say is that it's going to be a woman or a man who stands on their own feet and is not on their knees for Donald Trump. And I think people want to see that you have your own ideas, your own accomplishments. And that's why I think, you know, governors, mayors, people who are out there working on sort of those kitchen table issues that have always been successful for Republicans, but also highlighting a lot of the problems with the Biden agenda. I think one of the problems with fixating on Trump all the time is Republicans aren't talking about a lot of the problems, as you've mentioned, you know, that. The, you know, the tax rates that, um, you know, in the past, Obama, Chuck Schumer, lots of Democrats said were way too high and confiscatory. So we need to start talking about issues again. I think the men and women who, you know, stand up and just say, I'm going to fight for you. I'm not dealing with all this, you know, who's going to get asked to the prom by Donald Trump. And I think you people want to see strength and resolve in working for them not somebody who's kowtowing to some kind of cult figure. Mark, if Trump doesn't run, who do you think the movement conservatives, Freedom Caucus, some of the more populist Trump supporters, you don't have to name one, but who do you think make the first, the first bracket 
of the current people. You know, we're doing wild guessing now, but it's kind of it's fun. That's what we yeah, do. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, uh, Governor DeSantis is at the top of that list. Uh, he was a previous Freedom Caucus guy, was one of our founding members, now doing an outstanding as governor uh, in Florida. And it's really about the policies, as Barbara was talking about. It's really the way that he's governed in Florida that's moved him to the top. And he's become a, a remarkable top-tier candidate, if, if that's going to be the case. I happened to, uh, even before last, last night's speech, uh, uh, be a big, big fan of, of Tim Scott. Actually, uh, he, he's worked very closely with President Trump. We worked uh, together while I was at the White House on uh, his police reform bill. Uh, he's a very thoughtful guy and, and, and very funny, too. I mean, what, what people don't realize, they saw the serious side of Tim Scott last night. Uh, not only is he funny and smart and intelligent and, and, and uh, comes across in a genuine way, but he actually cares about people. I, I, I get that. I'm, my district uh, was right next to one of his best friends, Trey Gowdy's district in, in North Carolina, so I got to know Tim very well. So I think Tim, um, not just, be, in fact, not because of last night, but because of what he's done since he's come to, uh, to uh, serve in the Senate, I think he's a top-tier candidate. And then if you, you look beyond that, uh, you know, and Barbara's right. We're we're a long ways out. Uh, I I can say that uh, to your point, Nikki Haley hurt herself uh, where she was one one. Uh, you know, she was against uh, Donald Trump until the backlash was unbelievable, and then she was for Donald Trump. And uh, and Nikki Haley uh, really hurt herself uh, where I would say she had would have been probably the odds on favor early on, and. Uh, but the jury's still out. You got some great senators. Uh, I do believe that um, what what you're also going to find, though, is uh, the the Donald Trump uh, discussion will will actually be a, a litmus test. Either you, you're against him or you're with him in some shape, form, or fashion. The, the, the very fact that we're talking about this right now and that he's been out of office lets us know that we're going to be talking about it for a long time to come. Uh, the, the support of, you know, in California, your USC, you know, people don't realize over 6 million people in the state of California voted for Donald Trump. Now he's still lost by a, a large number, but the state that gave Donald Trump the most votes out of all 50 states was California. And, uh, and when you look at that, you can't help but understand that, uh, that there's going to be uh, uh, this interview process, so to speak, whether, whether President Trump runs or not. Jeremy, what do you think? You, you've been out becoming an expert on Republicanology, you know, as you've kind of looked at the history of the party in the last 20 years. If not Trump, who do you think, at least at this early stage, is sending the right kind of harmonies and notes out in the Republican world that could be interesting? Obviously, Tim Scott, I think, helped himself last night. You have Josh Hawley. There's something going on in Arkansas. Uh, uh, Tom Cotton, you got no shortage of people there who have been, they must have gone by uh, hope and had a little of that magic ambition water there because they're both making moves. Who, who, who do you see, at least in the first inning here, kind of warming up with the bat in a way that would resonate with the party you think we now are, if there's no Trump running? 
Yeah, I agree with everything that everybody has said um, on the viability of all of these folks. Uh, and Josh Hawley. Spoken my, like a true J- RNC chair. I think I found <laughs> your next your next job, but go ahead. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's quite the next move I'm making to look. I'll, I'll, I'll keep, I'm, I'm still pretty young, so I'll keep that in mind. But um, I, I was going to mention Josh Hawley, Mike, because I think that it, it, he is somebody who, and this will probably surprise a lot of, of the folks um, who are not uh, Republicans who are, who are who are tuned into this call, but it, to, to the point we were making earlier about what January 6th revealed about the culture of the Republican Party, I don't think Josh Hawley hurt himself in the slightest with Republican primary voters, uh, or with at least a majority of Republican primary voters, uh, by what he did on January 6th. And I think you, you combine that, so he has these, you know, these Trump credentials uh, because of the January 6th Issue. You also have, I think, it, it, one of the most serious attempts to create kind of an intellectual agenda around Trumpism. And what Hawley's done is to go after big tech as a monopoly and to try to break up big tech and to to, to turn them into uh, into this boogeyman. And I think that works for a lot of people because I think there are an awful lot of questions about why these companies have so much power and why we don't know the types of data that they have on us and what they can do with it and why that hasn't been restricted by Congress. Um, it's it's interesting to watch him. So well, I think he's you know he's he's been laying low. Uh, I also might think that your you know your good friend Marco Rubio is somebody to watch as well because he's also been trying to do something with Trumpism that strips out the, you know the, the nativism aspect there. I know Rubio and his people feel like what they can do or what they would like to try to do is to be the face of this multi-ethnic working class Republican coalition because they look at what happened in Florida, a state that Trump pretty comfortably won by Florida standards, and they see that it passed a minimum wage increase by something like 60 plus percent, you know, 60 plus percent of the population there supported it while also voting for Trump. Um, So there is, you know, again, it would be a big break with the type of policies that Rubio has supported himself as a senator and that many Republicans have supported um, you know, to, not very free market, not not very conservative economically speaking. But I think that's a direction that some of these guys like yeah, are, are looking to go in, and it is consistent in to, in, to some degree with Trumpism. Well, that is that a permanent change? Because look, many decades ago, I was sitting there at the Georgetown Foreign Service School getting yelled at in Russian by a Soviet Air Force defector, and my plan was to go off into the national security world and fight the evil empire when I wasn't working in the college Republicans. And what I liked was the free market, free trade, fiscal policy that wasn't built on deficits and borrowed money and and kind of small L liberal democratic values and marched off to join the Republican Party from a Democratic family in Detroit and loved it and was in those battles for a long time. But I woke up four years ago and now we're, we're feuding with the Atlantic Alliance that kept the peace under President Trump since 1945. We're spending like drunken sailors, although I'll give it to Biden. He's blown even that away. We kind of we went into hibernation on the fiscal stuff. And the free trade thing is now like out in the Republican Party. We're now we, we now sound more like Biden did last night. So is that permanent? Is is the old model gone? And we're the populist party from now on. And we don't care that much about deficits and we're more isolationist. Uh, or is that the great battle we're going to have? And anybody who wants to address it. 
I'd like to hear Mark Meadows answer this at some point as a as a former Freedom Caucus Tea Party guy. All right, well, let, let's let Robert take a, a a shot, and then then Mark, unless he has some Zoom connection trouble here in a minute, uh, <laughs> we, we'll throw it to him and Barbara, who actually had to vote on some of this stuff. I'll just quickly jump in, and I and I think it's just very interesting that um, the the uh, the two presidents, the two consecutive presidents that have decided to spend most like drunken sailors are both teetotalers. So that may tell you something. That may, that may tell you that may tell you that we need more politicians that drink. We need a new analogy. Yeah. <laughs> we, we need another. We, we need it. We need a new analogy. But um, I, I, I thought you know J- Jeremy's point about um, about you know what Marco Rubio is trying to do, and and also pairing that with with what uh, Josh Hawley is doing. Now it ended up backfiring because uh, uh, because of what happened down in in Alabama. But um, Rubio was 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 encur- was was encouraging unionization uh, at at Amazon um, because um, because uh, because Amazon um, was becoming uh, uh, was was representative of one of these um, big tech. Um, woke um, woke companies, and so Rubio says, "Yes, you know, let's uh, let's support let's support let's support the union." Uh, in in a similar in a similar fashion, you know, you know, Josh Hawley um, is is one of the leading people to 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 be supportive of regulating of of, of regulating big tech. We're we're starting to also get um, uh, murmurs of re- Republicans who want to use um, uh, the tax power um, against um, against against businesses um, that um, that uh, in a sense don't play ball. I mean, there are um, Hawley and um, Ted Cruz and, and at least one other senator are, are looking at, uh, at getting rid of um, baseball's um, baseball's anti um, antitrust antitrust exemption. So I, I think as part of this populist move, you are I think you will start seeing Republicans moving away from even the, the part of the of their party of being anti of anti-regulation um uh, uh, low, low low taxes or using using the, the the tax power to punish their enemies you know as as as, as democrats have done have have done in, have done in the past uh i think that may very well be part of the of the transition of the party um away from being um for being from free market um, to a uh, to to a, to a populist conservatism. But back to your point, Mark. Mark, of, I mean, Mike of of the you know. Listen, I, I know it's hard. You you get it confused. <laughs> We're interchangeable. Yeah. yeah but, but look at how the, if you want to listen to the people, look how the people who work at Amazon voted. You know, Republicans used to believe in elections and people voting with their feet, and and so. Let's pay attention to how people voted. I think, you know, Republicans should acknowledge that Trump lost and why he lost. Let's stop, you know, the whole stop the steal, big lie thing. And then let's get back to issues. And one of the things that Tim Scott, people like Mayor Suarez, people like Young Kim, what they're focusing on is opportunity, workforce development, good conservative principles that I think go kind of get us back, not into that old Republican, because we're 21st century. We have a different economy. The post-pandemic economy is going to be very different. People are not going to go back and work in their office nine to five the way unions or Democrats may want us to. People are going to work flexibly. They're going to have a hybrid. We've figured out we can be very productive. For certainly a lot of professionals can, but you know, for a lot of people, there's going to be a new normal. And I think the 
politicians who capture it, embrace it, and listen to what people want, that's who's going to win. And that isn't, you know, anything to do with personalities. That's people listening to their constituents, listening to their voters, and seeing and getting out there, going to your businesses, going to, you know, your constituents, and seeing what their lives are like, and how can you improve their lives. And that's where a voice like Tim Scott and, and you know, a lot of these people, like mayors kind of get that. And Mayor Suarez is, is asking tech companies to come to Miami. He wants to roll out the red carpet because he realizes those are good, high-paying jobs that'll bring a lot of tax revenue into the area. And then he can lower taxes of people like our friend Jeb Bush did in Florida for years. Mark, on this question of, you know, are we a populist party now? Is the old free trader Atlantic Alliance stuff gone or it's going to be a fight in the future? What, what's your take on just the ideological side beyond the personality uh, grip Donald Trump might have on the primary? It's a hybrid. And there are two kinds of people in Washington, D.C. that like to spend money, uh, Democrats and Republicans. And uh, and if you just remember that, I mean, that's uh, sadly, uh, you know, we, we can all, you know, pound our chest and say uh, this is we're going to be fiscally uh, restrained in the way that we legislate. But the fact of the matter is, in the privacy of a lot of those rooms, uh, it, it's uh, both sides that are agreeing to these unbelievable spending bills. Uh, having been in the room uh, to see how the sausage is made, uh, it's, it's very obvious that that's what's happened. Uh, to, but to your point, uh, I do think that we'll continue to hit a, a free trade aspect of that. A, a number of us that are uh, the the tip, more typical three stool conservatives. Uh, when you look at it, it's uh, uh, whether it's tariffs, whether it's uh, uh, the the way that we look at our, our national security and national defense. Uh, those are ways that that continue to to be a hybrid and. Uh, um, I, I, it may have been Robert that said, you know, it's a, a populist conservative movement. You, you mentioned Josh Hawley. Uh, the, the fact, the very fact is he was one of the few people that was calling for a stimulus check of $2,000 uh, per person uh, on a more populist. So here's a conservative senator saying that we need to spend $2,000 going against uh, what would many would characterize as the more conservative uh, steering committee senators in their their conference, and yet, uh, uh, what what do we know at the end of the day? Two thousand dollars per adult actually did get done. So if if you look at it, it was six hundred dollars under Donald Trump, but the reason it was fourteen hundred dollars under Joe Biden is because it started with two thousand uh, dollars with President Trump, and and it just carried through. And so that populist side of it uh, will continue to do there. My concern uh, still remains uh, the deficit and and where we go with that. Um, uh, I, I do. Big tech is actually changing a few things. You got guys like me who believe that uh, limited government is the best kind of government. And yet what we see with with the Googles and the Facebooks and the Twitters and, and their control, their, their de facto monopoly on the, the news that we consume, whether it's from the New York Times or anybody else, you know, they can they can affect the news feed that people get to see. Uh, it's very troubling for a guy like me who says, I don't I, I want to go totally free market. Let it go. Let it be the wild, wild west to a point now where I'm saying 
they need to be broken up. And, and that's a transformation that has happened in the last four to six years. So uh, when, when we see that, I think it'll be a hybrid of the two. I do think that uh, uh, you know, some of the policies, you, you can't argue with the economic success of, uh, of the pre-COVID uh, term of, of the Trump administration. I mean, we saw wages go up, we saw unemployment go down, and, and that was across the board, not just for one select group of, of workers. I think the odds are the Republicans will recapture the House as long as we stop talking about space lasers. If that happens, Biden's got a pretty narrow uh, a window to try to get his agenda done, and he's swinging big. But, you know, do we think anything will get done or it'll be just brute force reconciliation bills, starting with this infrastructure plan where there seems to be some steam building under the direction of Senator Manchin, who I think holds most of the cars to, you know, land about halfway there, focus more on concrete. Or is that a pipe dream and they're going to force through what they can and we'll be back into a campaign season in in eight or nine months? Anybody? Yeah, I I think on the infrastructure side of that, that Mike, uh, the reason why Manchin holds all the cards, and it's not just him, it's a few of the other senators on the Democrat side of the aisle, uh, Cinema in in Arizona, but it doesn't just stop with the two of them. Uh, Listen, when we talk about an infrastructure bill that's this big, the vast majority of that money doesn't go to uh, a number of these states that these senators uh, represent. It it doesn't go to Arizona. It doesn't go to West Virginia. When you look at it, the vast majority of it goes to, you know, six to maybe seven metropolitan areas. Uh, You're looking at Philadelphia, New York, Chicago, uh, Los Angeles, uh, and uh, Washington, D.C. And and when you look at that, it becomes very different, uh, difficult for a Joe Manchin to say, I'm willing to sign up for a two trillion dollar infrastructure package that by the way he will he and his constituents will not see during his term as a senator because it takes too long to actually get in the pipeline uh i i'm not optimistic that there will be a huge bipartisan deal uh, because I do believe the Democrats will overreach and continue to think that there is a uh, a, a blank check to be filled in Barbara, what do you think as a legislator? And then we'll move on to questions unless anybody else has a point on this. Well, I do. You know, we've been talking a lot about Tim Scott, but I do think his racial justice issues, he's working well with Democrats. And I think they have a a path to get a bill there. I think a smaller infrastructure plan that Republicans are trying to work on is possible. And then I think um, I think you're going to see Democrats um, from states like New York and New Jersey, already Senator Menendez is talking about, hey, whoa, stop it with these high tax rates. That's going to kill us. Because when you look at who voted for Joe Biden, it was a lot of people with very high incomes. And so, you know, uh, Steve Bannon wanted to raise the top rate. I, you know, when they came to our caucus the beginning of January 17th, they were like, hey, this would be cool. We can stick it to New York and Californians and all these rich people by raising the top rate. Republicans are like, wait a minute, we didn't run on raising taxes. Uh, so I think if Democrats uh, start sticking it to their own voters like that, you know, I mean, that's two income professionals in very expensive metropolitan areas where they're going to have members that are going to have problems. So I think that may get uh, curbed too. So then you're going to have to curb the spending. Um, and actually, that may help Biden because. You know, the less he raises taxes, the better uh, the better the Democrats, you know, are, are going to do. So in a way, you know, Republicans have to fight the good fight to not. I mean, I voted for the tax bill. I am a standard Republican who wants to see, 
you know, there's good, you know, opportunity, uh, you know, lower taxes and, and what we did there. And I don't want to see that reversed. And I, but I think there's bipartisan agreement there, certainly on the capital gains tax, the same thing, because it's not just what it is here. We're competing internationally. And if you care about competition, and, it, and actually I, I work in the tech sector, but I say, you care about competition. You don't want China beating us on taxes. Please stop talking about breaking them up and making our tech sector weak when China is trying to beat us. And let's stop as Republicans shouldn't be punishing success. So um, I, I mean, I'm optimistic that, you know, because we're already targeting women and minority candidates who can Republicans who can win in these tough swing districts. And I think if if the Democrats overreach like they did in 20, then that will uh, put some, a lot of our uh, candidates in, in better shape. Okay, let's go to the questions here. They're flying in. Here's a question from Alex Michelson, our friend who's going to be hosting the next panel on the 2022 elections, which you should see. We have a real great bunch of experts there. Alex wants to know, and we're going to try to get through a couple of these, so we'll be quick. Is there actual political incentive for bipartisan compromise with Biden? Should the GOP be worried about compromising and giving him a win politically? Real quick, why don't we start with Robert, then go to Jeremy, and then if either of our former members want to chime in. I think it's pretty clear right now that that, uh, uh, Republicans don't see any... um, uh, political uh, incentive uh, to uh, to compromise uh, to compromise with this administration, um, and and conversely, I, I I don't think that the uh, the Democrats um, see any Republicans coming their way. So that's why right now the the, the debate is with uh, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema and a, and a couple of um, a couple of others. So uh, yeah, I don't I, I don't I will be very skeptical if there's going to be um, any. Any any bipartisan deal uh, in, um, over the next few months, Jeremy? What do you think? I think that's a good point. I I think the question is so who who does that hurt more? And it looks like I mean history will tell us uh, it's going to hurt the, the the party in power uh, more. But I think that the the biggest issue there is how much. Democrats are defined by the elements in their party that are shouting no compromise, no compromise, no compromise. Republicans are are Satan uh, and Biden for even considering uh, in, inviting um, Susan Collins into his office. You know, uh, it's it, that's an act of heresy. I think there is a real risk. And I read this very interesting interview um, that I would suggest uh, if you guys haven't read it um, the other day on Vox uh, by uh, James Carville who talked about this and what a problem it's going to be for the Democratic Party in 2022 as they keep getting defined by the noisiest, uh, most far left elements in their party. Now, a lot of that is disingenuous right wing media caricature of the Democratic Party, but it Biden has not shown a real willingness to stand up to these these ideas like defund the police that are just incredibly unpopular, but those have come to be what has defined many voters understanding of democratic policies on law enforcement. And I think, you know, there's, it's, it's a real concern for a lot of Democrats that I've talked to because they recognize that there is one political party in this last election that got whiter and more elite. And that's the democratic party. And that's a big problem. Interesting point. Go ahead, Barbara. 
Bill Clinton, when he triangulated, you know, he went too far left, lost the House, and then triangulated and won in 96. If Biden triangulates now, before he loses the House, it actually probably would help him both hold the House. I mean, that may not be, you know, may not be possible, but depending on what our candidate recruitment and how much we allow Trump to pollute it um, happens. But I think triangulation um, is, is why Biden won. He kind of split the baby. And if he moves to the left, it's going to hurt him. So, I mean, far left. So if he stays more in the middle and triangulates, not something that we've really seen yet, uh, I, th- I think that will um, probably help him as well as Democrats in getting reelected. Yeah, I, I don't see that happening just because 2022 is upon us and there will be primaries Democrat primaries that will actually have challenges from the left, and it's going to keep uh, the agenda going left. It's why the uh, Bi- Joe Biden is where he is right now. And so, uh, if anything, I think it gets worse. Uh, James Carville is right. So there's a bipartisan agreement uh, in that. Uh, that I, I I think he is right. There's there's no way to win with that because uh, at, at the end of the day. Uh, the the far left is is going to continue to take the Democrat Party that way, and and senators and House members are fearful of those primaries. Um, and and AOC has a lot to do with that. Okay, next question. This is from the the, the questioner, best known as anonymous. Yeah. Young conservatives clearly exist, but you wouldn't know it looking at many universities around the country where a small minority of extreme liberals bully and antagonize conservatives. What should liberals and especially extreme liberals know about Trump supporters to help encourage empathy and respectful dialogue on our university campuses? And let me footnote that, that I think here at USC, we make a real effort not to have that cancel culture, which is why we we invite people from every side of the, the spectrum and we have for about two years, and we're proud of that here. We're a very tolerant university for interesting points of view. Uh, but now, who who want, this is an easy layup to any conservative who's tired of this stuff. So let's make it quick because I want to get one more question. But who wants to take that one? Nobody? I, who's I the don't youngest here? We're not, <laughs> I have kids who are in that age grade. I said, no, I mean, I, I think um, having been teaching a little bit over the past few years and seeing people who are young conservatives, there are a lot of really sharp young conservatives, again, who want to turn the page and kind of have a different approach. I think certainly, you know, we have been losing young voters and that's a problem. So, uh, again, that's why I think we need new faces who can kind of combine and weave together a lot of these things and leave personality politics aside. Last question, again from Anonymous, another a lot of anonymity here. Congressional districts have become increasingly homogeneous over the decades, most districts are won by 10 or more percentage points, and at least a third are won by 50 or more percentage points. The primaries are where the action seems to be. This seems contrary to GOP values on competitiveness and opposing monopolies. Do you support open primaries or requiring nonpartisan redistricting? These seem like Republican issues, but Dems are taking the lead on them. What are we missing here? And I'll quickly say, hell yes, the more the primary electorate looks like the wider election free market, I think the better it is. I think it's better for both parties. But generally, in my experience, people in the system now have mastered it and are not unhappy with the idea of being in a safe district. So you can be for AOC or Trump because you only have to deal with your primary voters. But anyway, anybody else? 
no to open primaries because I think the party should get, should should have the option of you know choosing um, you know choosing the candidates that they want. But I do but I do think that uh, having um, a non nonpartisan um, not nonpartisan uh, redistricting um, w- would be would ultimately be better because you're going to have more compact districts and uh, and you're not going to be you're not going to be in a situation where the politicians are um, selecting the voters. But the whole country at large is becoming more diverse. So I think after redistricting, regarding, I mean, there's, you, you can only redistrict so much when you have a more diverse country. So I think everyone after redistricting is going to see all of their districts are going to be a little bit more purple. And so I think I mean, my district was very diverse and very, you know, was purple and, and, and to blue. But I think that is what more people are going to see. And I think that is good because then people have to talk to people other than themselves and they have to talk to a wider variety of people. And I think a lot of people who may not realize that's what's going on in their districts, their states are going to see that. North Carolina is seeing a lot of what has happened in Virginia. So, so is Florida. Georgia is certainly a perfect example of that in Arizona. So I think it is good that our, you know, it's, it's going to happen no matter redistricting. So I think people focus too much on the redistricting. We are an increasingly diverse country. If you go in and look in any kindergarten in any district, you can see the future. And, and that is where, you know, if you want to have a political future, you need to be talking to those parents of those children in kindergarten. Look, the question and how it applies to, to each political party, I think, is kind of fascinating, right? Because, Mike, I mean, I don't need to tell you, you worked for the guy in, in 2016 whose whole thing was, I'm going to be the candidate who's willing to lose the primary uh, and, and, and win the general. And, and we you know, did. And, <laughs> uh, and, and in, the, in the Democratic Party, this time around, 2020, you had the guy win who said, basically, I'm going to be the one who, is, who can win the general. I'm not so worried about the, the Democratic primary electorate or, you know, said that in a way that was, wasn't quite as direct as I'm wording it here. But the, so that is the, the fact that that played out for the Democrats and not for Republicans. I wonder if you see a, a reversal of that next time. Um, or not. Well, what we're seeing now is both primary elections and candidates who tend to be successful in them look at general elections as just a bigger primary. And so that is that is the incentive set now. And we're seeing if you look at the demographic tables, although there's some good news in the Latino community for Republicans, I think that is a dumb bet for us. But anyway, we're out of time. So I want to do the thank yous. I want to start by saying, what a good looking panel. I'm embarrassed here. I was late. So I just threw on a blazer and I look like a nightclub magician. So you are satorially an excellent panel. And thank you for your insights. I want to thank Jeremy. When's your book coming out? Uh, it's coming out the first week of January 2022. So uh it's it's it always had a good title we just didn't know how uh how on the nose it was going to be the title being insurgency so uh january release is good timing excellent we'll be back and do something with that robert they can catch up with you on bloomberg opinion thank you so much barbara thank you very much for being here and being such an excellent fellow and finally mark even though the drugs are wearing off and i'm about to go on a trump the criminal (laughs) rant i want to thank you for showing up for what was an away game and All so right, thank well, you very much for contributing and being part of this. My, my, my pleasure. It was great to join you. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter 
at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. 